Welcome once again to the Arcananth podcast. It's your host, Michael here, and this is the podcast all about anthropology, the study of people, and archaeology, the study of the human past. Today, I have a special guest on the show, Christopher Kendall. Chris, are you there? Hi, I am. Thank you for having me. And, and thank you as well for uh, being a guest. Uh, how are you, Chris? Where are you calling in from today? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. I'm calling in from Hamilton, Ontario in Canada. Um, we got an early winter blizzard about a month or about a week ago. Um, and it's actually reasonably warming now. So everything's kind of melted. So we've got that kind of ugly late winter look to us right now, which is great. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I'd like to first ask if uh, you could tell me a bit about your, your background and how you ended up doing the PhD that you're doing right now. Sure. Um, so in high school, I didn't actually take enough university credits uh, to get into university. So I had to do a college course because uh, I wanted to be a rock star. That's like 100% what I wanted to do. <laughs> cool. Um, I didn't. I purposely took less credits than what I needed to to get into university because um, I didn't need it. There was no point. Um so then I, I did a college degree because I had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, just like a little two-year kind of quick and dirty thing. And um, I did really well in anthropology, uh, but talking to some of my uh, family members and that, they thought that maybe a psychology degree would get me a little bit further. So that's what I took in my undergrad. And when I got to third year, I took this one anthropology course because anthropology was my minor. Mm-hmm. And it was the study of ancient DNA. And I'd always loved Jurassic Park and thought it was the coolest thing ever. I didn't <laughs> realize that this was actually like literally real, that you could take uh, DNA from old, old bones and recreate it. Now, of course, we're not uh, anywhere near uh, a de-extinction yet. But that in third year, that like opened my eyes. I, I made psych my minor, pushed through anthro, took an extra year. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to make sure that I got everything that I could. Um, and then I applied to UFT for my master's. Didn't get in on my first try. I was super disheartened as everybody is, but realized that there's a light kind of at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, just reapplied, got in and here I am. Like I just, I didn't really have any kind of concrete plans. I just knew that I really liked ancient DNA Um, and I wanted to go to grad school. So I was open to doing like stable isotopes or anything, but I really did like ancient DNA. And luckily uh, my two supervisors had a project ready to go for ancient DNA that I happily jumped on. And uh, oh no, like all all your rock star dreams are over now because uh, anthropology was just too interesting. Exactly. I mean, once I get the PhD, you never know. Like there's um, from the offspring, he has a, one of the guys, Dexter, I think, I think he has a PhD in, uh, chemical engineering or something. So, you know, Um, and so, you know, ancient DNA, um, looking at questions of the human past from this biological perspective, is this broadly speaking, like the areas of, of archeology span and anthropology that you work in? It is. So I'm, my project is looking at uh, hybridization between primate species and we're looking at primates because while we know that humans did hybridize loosely, uh, meaning that we could interbreed across um, different so-called species, like with Neanderthals um, and Denisovans, and there is evidence of this in the past, um, there's no, there's obviously no Neanderthals and Denisovans alive today, so we can't really uh-huh. test um, kind of the effect of this hybridization, whether it was 
uh, positive, negative. Like we have some ideas um, based on um, like the genes and all that and how they're expressed in us and how they were um, and basically how we got them from the Neanderthals and the Denise Finns, but there's no direct test. So primates uh, do hybridize quite regularly. And just looking specifically at the sperm function genes to see um, if there's any sort of like uh, barrier to hybridization, like if the offspring become viable or not, and what this could mean for uh, the hybridizations that humans went through in the past. Mm-hmm. There have been uh, like some previous guests on the podcast and other people who talk about this sort of subject online who uh, who kind of advocate for like not thinking about these different groups as different species necessarily, given that human beings or anatomically modern humans have Neanderthal and Denisovan DNA as part of their genome. And I was wondering like, what is, what is your opinion on this uh, question of whether they're separate species? Uh, I mean, I haven't really thought about it too much. Like I'm just, I'm not going to take like a, biological species concept or anything like whether or not we can interbreed or not um, and whether or not like we look different like there's all these old books that have so many different species concepts in them i'm just i just find it interesting that um Mm -hmm. like we can definitely classify them as different species because the, the dna itself is different enough um but everything is a mosaic like there's no such thing as a pure thing everything is a hybrid of some sort or a little bit of everything. Like I think there's something like we're 40% flower or something like that. Like we share DNA with everything because we all came from one thing. Right. So I, I mean, species are real of course, because we're able to classify Mm -hmm. it, but it's just a way of classifying something to make it easier for us to understand. Mm -hmm. In, uh, in genetics work, uh, how does it, how do you conceive of uh, different groups or, or taxonomy? So the way I look at it, I'm, I'm just going by their, basically like the classifications that other people have gone by and whether or not they share a certain number of genes or alleles with, with one another. I'm not too overly concerned about whether or not they're like, they fall distinctly in one category because we know, especially with baboons, that they have a long, long history of admixture. So there's no, like, yes, they do have separate genes that would would, uh, or separate stretches of DNA that would classify them as unique to one another in certain regions, but mm-hmm. they do share a fair bit of uh, genetic material with one mm-hmm. another. Is uh, like the baboon species like a very uh, important and like prominent example in our primate family of of that hybridization? Yeah, so they would be probably one of the most well documented. I would say uh, them and macaques are probably the two most. Um, what I like to call them the most prolific hybridizers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's taken from Ackerman or one of Ackerman's papers. Mm-hmm. And they just describe that basically everywhere you look um, amongst macaques and baboons, you can pretty much find some instance of hybridization. Mm-hmm. Do we see this also like in uh, animals, like outside of the primate order? Yeah, it's fairly common. Um, there's some recent papers that show that bear species are very, very intermixed. Um, there's some more recent work that's started looking at marine animals like dolphins and whales. And we're finding that they're, it was shocking at the time that they're actually a lot more admixed, um, or they've hybridized a lot more than we initially Mm -hmm. thought. 
Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, especially like since starting this podcast, um, I've been really like interested in keeping up to date with news in like evolutionary anthropology. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of like previous guests, they work in genetics or human evolutionary studies. And <clears throat> at least over the last year, I've learned a, like a great deal about, you know, new fossils and, and new articles, even just in 2019 alone. And I was wondering, like, what research uh, from the last year or so has really um, surprised you or interested you? Oh, boy. There's so <laughs> much. So there was a paper recently published by, I think it was Colwem in 2019. Mm-hmm. And they found that there was actually a ghost ape lineage that had interbred with bonobos sometime around 500 to 750,000 years ago. Um, it was interesting because, one, we don't know what this ape lineage is. Um and two, they contributed upwards of 4% to the bonobo line. Um, but this intergression actually, or admixture, I guess, wasn't lost here, mm-hmm. um, showing that they were reproductively compatible, which is quite interesting. Um, so it actually kind of mirrors mostly what we see in humans and Neanderthals and humans and Denisovans, where there, for the most part, there is a little bit of loss, but it's not um, widespread weeping incompatibility. Mm-hmm. I mean, every time uh, like a paper like this comes out, I I think about like when I was an undergrad uh, taking those anthropology classes, just like you did, I think about like the textbooks and the articles that I was reading back then. And, you know, it just seems like every year that goes by, everything changes again. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely insane to me. Like there's just so much data that we can get um, and just like color our world and like open our eyes. It was like, <laughs> I just remember like I was an undergrad when they, the first Neanderthal paper came out and now they're like a dime a dozen. It's just unbelievable the amount that we've done in the last decade. <laughs> right. Um, I know you're on a, a paper that was published last year, which is uh, basically all about when humans first entered the Americas mm-hmm. and how we can analyze such a question using genetic evidence. I was wondering um, if we could like, peel back the curtain a little bit and talk about how you first came to be involved in such a project. Okay, sure. So I met the first author, um, so Freddie, as everyone likes to call her. Um, I actually met her in my master's. So I did my two supervisors, so this ancient DNA project. Uh, They've been talking with uh, Cambridge University in the UK, and they had a bunch of Southwestern uh, Ontario samples from this uh, graveyard called Lucier, which is an, an indigenous um, cemetery that was excavated sometime in the early 1900s. And the skeletons were housed at U of T. Mm-hmm. And then there was a second group from my co-supervisor that were uh, excavated earlier than that, I believe probably in like the late 1800s. Um, but they were being curated by the Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, and they were from, we're not actually sure because the documentation is really, really poor on this, um, but somewhere on the Colorado-New Mexico border. Mm-hmm. So being kind of relatively new to ancient DNA and being only in it for about a year and having almost zero biology background, we wanted to kind of take it simple um, and take it easy. So we were just kind of looking at extracting the mitochondrial haplogroups um, or the haplotypes. So what... Um, it's kind of like a loose uh, basis of ancestry of like who you can kind of trace it back through time and see which groups um, they might have belonged to based on genetic affinity. Mm-hmm. And 
with that, we found that not surprisingly, that there was actually a mixture of both um, Algonquin uh, speaking groups in my uh, in my Southwest samples, uh, which weirdly kind of linked to it kind of shared a haplotype with uh, Kennewick Man, which I thought was surprising mm-hmm. um, at the time anyway, because we didn't know about this um, intermixing and this kind of this just the mixing of groups um, that was done in the past that uh, Freddie had kind of uncovered and, and hinting at a little bit between uh, other studies that had been published around the same time. Because mm-hmm. all the research that I've been looking at had shown that Yes, there had been a little bit of mixing between the groups, but after about maybe five or 6,000 years ago, the groups had kind of maintained their own distance from one another and had just been um, breeding with their own populations, mm-hmm. uh, which kind of makes sense with the history that we had. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we we're just kind of interested in that. And then the Southwest population, we were just looking at who are these individuals because they there was no documentation. We just wanted to see uh, which group they might have belonged to so that we could uh, begin kind of like uh, the process of like repatriating the remains or at least notifying uh, the certain groups that these individuals mm-hmm. do exist. Whenever I read these genetic papers about the peopling of the Americas, I, I always appreciate how there's always like different models that the geneticists will come up with to explain the data because it isn't always the case that there is one clear um, answer about mm-hmm. the, the route that people took and how long people stayed in a certain place, uh, admixing or not admixing, right? That's true. Yeah. So, um, for example, in Freddie's paper, uh, we discovered that um, using some of my samples, but more of her samples that she'd been studying. So, her research was looking at um, kind of the genetic ancestry of coastal indigenous populations. And she was able to find out that um, there were two kind of, there were two groups, she called them in the paper, like Ancestor A and Ancestor B. Mm -hmm. Um, And these were two uh, North American populations that had been, uh, that were separate and then they'd admixed at one time. And then those groups eventually migrated into South America. So the models proposed, um, at least at the time, because we weren't really able to test this in detail with the amount of uh, genomes that we had, um, was that either they uh, interbred with one another in North America, um, population A went into South America, and then population B followed and and, uh, interbred, or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Um, Or there was a final um, kind of suggestion, which I think, makes the most sense is that the two populations actually just kind of regularly admixed within North America and you just kind of get this mosaic and then they both migrated into South America over time. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you think that that makes the most sense? Um, just based on, if we go back to like the primate research, we know that there's kind of like prolific hybridization, as I call it. Um, we know that uh, humans and our archaic cousins like Neanderthals and Denisovans uh, interbred repeatedly. Um, so it just kind of follows the pattern of what we see um, going back um, with our cousins and all that. So it just it just makes sense. So sure, there might have been some isolation uh, from one another, but humans typically, if someone looks good, you're going to try and attract them. It's just kind of the general rule. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, I was looking at the at the author list also on this paper, and there are quite a number of authors. <laughs> yes, there's like 50 or something like that. So what is the, the need for so many people to take part in such research? So the cool thing with genetics is, um, or at least genetic papers, is that we're very collaborative and you're usually specialized in one very, very unique area. Mm -hmm. um, so there might be someone who's really, really good at... Um, some type of analysis. So like using um, Admixture, for example, which is a type of uh, software that looks at well, Admixture, and that's the name uh, suggests. But there's also, there's some groups um, that were part of like the archaeology teams um, that were part of like repatriating these. There's a couple, I think both of my, no, sorry, my one supervisor is on that and she's on that because she provided samples mm -hmm. and did a little bit of analysis. Um, there's a whole host of uh, people from the Sanger Institute, which is who I kind of like sort of collaborated with for my, um, for my MSC. <laughs> and they were on there because they just did a little bit of analysis, but it was just because they provided funding. So uh, Freddie was pretty liberal in who she put on the author list, but there's also some people who I never met who did analysis. Um, I couldn't say exactly what they did um, because I wasn't familiar with them and being... Uh, an entire ocean away. Right. I can't say for sure, but uh, I do know that she did. Um, she did reach out to a lot of people to do very specific analysis to make sure that we hammered home everything and kind of left no stone unturned. Mm -hmm. Right. Definitely. How did you feel when you first got the email or when you were first um, in these conversations to to do this study? Um, to be honest, I was actually a little surprised that it was even going anywhere because again, mitochondrial DNA research at the time, which is what I did for my, uh, my master's thesis. I just figured that, you know, this is going to be another master's thesis that's put on a shelf somewhere and literally no one's going to read. <laughs> um, and then about a year after the fact, I just get an email from Freddie with the finished paper. Like we've been talking about submitting it to science and nature, but I was just like, you know what, this is going to go literally nowhere. Like it's not, it's not going to, like what are the chances of that happening? And then six months from that point, um, I get the email with the finished um, manuscript being submitted. And I was like, wow, okay, interesting. Um, so it got me a little bit excited. And yeah, here we go. <laughs> right. So you, um, you've been mentioning the master's degree that you were doing. Um, what did you work on in your master's? Um, so that was that project of, with the uh, Lucier Cemetery and the uh, Southwest uh, Indigenous populations. Mm -hmm. um, so I went to Cambridge to do data collection in July of 2015 and August of 2015. Um, so Freddie was kind of my liaison at that point. Um, she was helping me do the ancient DNA work. Um, just again, being kind of pretty unfamiliar with it. Like I knew how to do it, but I didn't know how to do it properly, if that makes sense. Right. Like I'd read about it, but I hadn't actually done too much hands-on material with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, like when, when you're making that transition from like just reading about it to actually doing it physically, what are like some mm -hmm. uh, material or like tangible real differences that you felt and things that you were learning while doing it? Definitely nothing comes out as easily as they make it sound like on paper. <laughs> um, there's usually a lot more contamination than you think like they the way they'll they'll portray it is they're able to like clean out the contamination using um reagent x or they can do it uh, computationally blah 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 mm -hmm. um 
the problem with a lot of our stuff was it was very, very contaminated um, just because it had been sitting in a box for close to 100 years in the basement of uh, UFT or in the in the basement of uh, the Army Corps of Engineers. So um, there was a lot of stuff to get rid of. So like just dirt, just natural human dirt as well, <laughs> like people coughing and sneezing all over them. Um, so a lot of the haplogroups or haplotypes, so again, those... Um, those kind of like genetic affinities were a little harder to obtain than I thought. Like I figured it would just be easy. You could just kind of plop it into a software and boom, you're done. Mm -hmm. But you get that list and some of them make sense and some of them make absolutely no sense. And you have to fiddle through them. Like, well, maybe these are populations we're not actually talking about mm -hmm. um, or that we, we don't, that actually aren't from this region and they're actually different. Um, but once you can kind of clean it up and that's kind of the job of like a bioinformatic uh, team to do, mm -hmm. um, they're able to kind of like narrow it down a little right. bit better. When, when we talk about geneticists being able to <clears throat> extract this genetic evidence from bone and, and teeth, could you explain a little bit about like where exactly in skeletal tissues that scientists are acquiring that DNA? Sure. So again, everything in anthropology, as you, as we all know, um, is a debate. Uh, there's never anything that's very uh, kind of cut and dry. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of ancient DNA um, researchers will extract DNA from teeth just because teeth are kind of like a closed system, right? They're, they don't really degrade as quickly as bone does over time. They're pretty resistant to kind of the diagenetic processes. And when I say that, that means like the outside influences that kind of aim to degrade something over time. Mm -hmm. um, so teeth are pretty good with that because of their enamel cap. So typically DNA, and, the, and for my project anyway, we're, we're extracted from uh, the tooth root and the dentin um, just because it's so hard to get through. Um, a lot of researchers now are looking at the petrous bone um, mm -hmm. inside the skull. Um, just because, again, it's super, super dense and really hard to get to, so it's kind of slow to degrade. Um, but there's a lot of pipelines and projects nowadays that you can just use kind of like a targeted capture probe, um, which can sift. You just kind of do everything. You do, They call it shotgun sequencing. Right. So you just kind of shoot and you grab what you grab, and then you filter out the, the non-human um, or whatever animal you're looking at. Um, you filter out the non-stuff and you just get what you need. It takes a little bit longer, but it's uh, it's pretty effective because you just kind of grab everything and then uh, filter mm -hmm. after. I was uh, actually just, uh, when we when we were recording this, the Saturday that just went by, I was actually at a conference. Um, I, I live in the Netherlands and oh, okay. I went to a Dutch anthropology conference and I went to this workshop that was all about ancient DNA extraction. And specifically like the, the petrous bone and working with the petrous bone for isotopes or for ancient DNA. Mm -hmm. We we spoke a lot about where exactly in the petrous bone people can get the, the best evidence mm -hmm. or the best genetic evidence or the most well-preserved evidence. And surprisingly, to me at least, uh, that there is no consensus or it, it's really if you can get the whole the, you can if you can get the whole petrous bone. Uh, on the side of your head, on the side of your skull, that's best. But in terms of like trying to preserve the material, it's quite tricky because we don't actually know a lot about the like the the skull morphology in that part of the the head. Yeah, and that's 
totally makes sense. And that's because again, well, you have to kind of remember, and I always forget this as well, that ancient DNA is very, very new. It's like 32 years old. Like mm-hmm. it's not, it's not an established, like, yes, it's an established science, but it's not, um, super well researched um because it's so new like we're always we're kind of at the forefront of discover like everything that we do is brand new it's not like we're going to suddenly discover i don't know that something like trivial about it it's always going to be something shocking and interesting mm-hmm. and the one thing to kind of take apart from that as well is that the petrous bone being inside the skull um, a lot of people don't like using it because it is very destructive, right? Like you have to smash a skull to get it. And that's not ideal when you're looking at uh, kind of non-destructive techniques or for preserving uh, the remains for future research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that there are studies that are, um, well, th- there definitely are studies that look at like uh, cranial metrics, like measurements of the the skull. Um, and then there are also, of course, people who are trying to study like internal structures, like the bony labyrinth of the ear yeah. um, or the inner ear bones as well, like the stapes, uh, incus and malleus. But if you destroy all of that, you're not going to be able to do that kind of research. Exactly. And it's so... And that type of research is so important. It's so important to have um, kind of a whole, a holistic look at something. It's not like, cool, you get the DNA, like that's a, it's something neat, but that doesn't tell us much about how the people could have lived that you couldn't, they can get from other parts of the bone um, where you can look at mm-hmm. how like stress uh, might influence bone growth and something like that. So to completely um, dissolve bone um, isn't great. But luckily, there are some new methods that are taking less. You need less and less bone material, which is really, really good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do we know a lot about uh, what environmental or what sort of uh, taphonomic um, processes are the most degrading for DNA? Yeah, we do actually. So there was a paper um, that I published with um, a couple people that I met in a failed PhD experiment that I did. Um, we can come back and talk about that <laughs> later if you like. Um, so we studied, we looked at um, diagenesis. So I referred to that earlier. So just like the processes that kind of degrade bone typically um, over time. Now they can it can be used to preserve bone as well, but it's just generally how something. Um, gets put into the fossil record essentially is just like the easiest way to say it um so higher temperatures will be really really bad for dna it tends to leach it out um any sort of loss of or rapid loss of collagen actually leaches out dna really fast any sort of broken area um, because water um, and dirt and all that crud can get inside the bone and help leach out um, the usable dna so there's it's it's fickle it needs um it needs a pretty good cool uh dryish environment in order to preserve pretty well that's why Mm -hmm. um you see all those really really good dna papers are all coming from like russia and siberia and and northern europe because well it's cooler there right it preserves a lot better you see very very few dna papers coming from africa for example or ancient dna papers like i should say there's a there's been a couple um 
but definitely nothing near as much as you see in the cooler climates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, the thing that I have learned from like several geneticists on the podcast before you uh, is that also a lot of ancient DNA evidence comes from caves because the the ambiance environment is more like consistent and it's not as fluctuating as if it were outside. Exactly. So that's kind of where you get into um, these different regimes they're called in, uh, in diagenesis. So the, uh, the fluctuating regime, regime, excuse me, is the most, uh, most destructive for sure. So where you have like cyclical uh, wetting and drying events, mm-hmm. um, those just, crush DNA, crush any sort of uh, preservation that you're going to see. It just completely um, destroys any sort of usable material, which is sad. Like even the skeleton very rarely preserves. When you're doing this genetic science, what do you think or what do you feel is the most challenging part of it? So speaking from personal experience, it's just trying to get access to the samples. Um, That's just my own take on it, just because that's Kind of what I've been going through right now, and in my last three months, I've been trying to mm-hmm. get samples. Um, mm-hmm. But I feel like if you're talking strictly ancient DNA, it's 100% contamination, and I think most people would agree with me on that. It's just that there's, it's so hard to get authentic endogenous DNA out of something that's been um, effectively just sitting out in the open for what thousand plus years up to a hundred thousand two hundred thousand years mm-hmm. so it's that's really really tough but in at least for uh talking about like modern genomics kind of what i'm doing now for my phd um one it's sample acquisition um at least for me um and then two is just trying to stay on top of all these different softwares and trying to stay on top of what's current like it feels like almost every week I turn around and my supervisor sending me a new paper that's like very, very relevant to what I'm doing. And I have to kind of step back and rethink my approach. I think um, that like requires a bit of adaptability. Yes, I agree. Um, Luckily I'm fairly flexible. Like I'm, everything here is super, super new to me. So I feel like I'm not having to relearn anything. Like I'm currently doing um, an internship with a bioinformatics department at a local hospital. Um, and again, kind of like what I said to Freddie, I emailed the, uh, the head and just said, Hey, I'm a PhD student. I'm interested in doing this. I pretend I don't know anything cause I pretty much don't. Can you teach me the proper way to do it? Yeah. Um, so I feel like I'm getting my legs that way, but I can understand that if someone learned how to do ancient DNA in the nineties and they're looking at this now, 20 years later, um, it, it would probably be a big step. Now there's also a good group of people like out at uh, Max Planck's um, at Harvard and a lot of the uh, California schools. And there's some schools in between that I'm sure I'm missing and I apologize about that, but they were kind of at the forefront of ancient DNA and they're the ones that are creating this software. So they're on top of it. But for anyone who just kind of has a loose interest in it and maybe dabbles in it here and there, it's definitely a steep climb. Mm -hmm. When you um, see news outlets or, you know, things online where people are reporting genetics and um, reporting, you know, the scientific findings that that you guys are coming up with, do you find that the news always gets it right or maybe not? How much trouble do I want to get into? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Let's, I think they... So if we're looking at the general news media, they, I don't 
they're not really going to get it right because they don't have to get it right. They're just going to pick the mm-hmm. kind of the most important headline or the kind of the, the tagline of the paper and they're going to publish that, right? And the public's going to run with that. And it's it's the same with anything. It doesn't have to be genetics. It can be anything in anthropology, right? Um, but for the research papers, at least from what I've seen, is there's a lot, there is a lot of good research out there. Some of it I don't necessarily agree with. And I think we would, we can kind of all take that stance that there is some stuff that we might raise our eyebrows at. But by and large, there's a lot of good research that's being done. And again, I don't know if maybe that's just a byproduct of it being kind of a new field. So everything is kind of that shocking, cool factor that we're all like, oh, wow, we didn't know that. We didn't know this. Um, But I haven't really seen too, too many papers that you look at and kind of makes you go, huh, okay, why did they do that? Uh, Let's put it there. Let's put it another way. What kinds of um, reporting do you do appreciate? Like, what do you look for in a news article that that reports science um, Uh, accurately or responsibly? I think just not posting the headlines, like the ones that actually kind of go in and engage with the researchers who did the project and go out and the researchers who maybe weren't affiliated with the project. So I'm pretty, and I'm really bad at this and I really should get better, but I'm pretty sheltered when it comes to the news. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't read a ton of it. Um, I used to go on Reddit all the time and then decided that was bad for my mental health. <laughs> um, so, I went, so I stopped doing that. So now if I do read anything, it's a lot of it being public, like the nature news and stuff like that. So they seem to get it right because they're, that's what they do. Like they, they're the ones that are publishing this. So they're getting, getting their news I say this loosely, but air quote properly because they're pulling it directly from the source and they're able to interview people who are directly um, either related to the study or they know of people who do study this and they can reach out for opinions. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you're looking at the general, general population, like just like a, I don't know, let's just call it USA Today, for example, just to pull something off the top of my head, they probably don't get it as right. For example, um, I think there was a paper that was published, not in anthropology, but um, just kind of in medical science. And they found that um, something about red meat was actually good for you. And they've been publishing for years that red meat was terrible for you. So it just kind of flip-flops back and forth, right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think they they don't have a duty to to do it better, I don't think, but they should try, if that makes sense. They should maybe... Um, if they don't understand a paper, don't just take the final two sentences and make that an article. Maybe interview the researchers and kind of ask them, well, what are the interesting conclusions? Or I see these results. They don't really make sense to me. So what's what's the takeaway from this? Because mm-hmm. it ended up being when they were talking to a medical doctor about this meat thing is that everyone always knew that red meat was okay for you within, again, in, in balance. So for them to go ahead and say, eat it as much as you want, that was completely false. That wasn't what the paper was saying at all. Right, exactly. And usually it's like uh, probably more nuance there somewhere. Exactly. It's uh, it's maybe suggested um, and then maybe someone who has a general degree in something reads that and goes, oh, okay, that's what that paper means. And then they publish it and mm-hmm. they run with it. But that's, as you, we all know, that's rarely the case. There's usually a lot more, uh, as you said, nuance to it or there's... Um, 
it's a little bit more blurry than it actually comes out to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, on the Reddit thing, I I also kind of like drop these episodes on Reddit myself. Yeah. And um, uh, and then I run away because I don't want to uh, stay on there too long sometimes because there are a lot of people <laughs> with, um, yeah. I don't know, unkind things to say sometimes. Uh, and not that I'm afraid of criticism, but it's uh, sort of like, I mean, 99% of people who leave a comment or, you know, they'll, they'll leave a positive comment or they'll, they'll upvote uh, the post. But then there's always that one person out of 100 who wants to go on a tirade on Reddit. And um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's very difficult to elicit that kind of response with yeah, the podcast. <laughs> I, I agree with you. And it wasn't necessarily, I didn't really have that much um, of an experience just kind of being an, an anonymous person on Reddit. Like obviously I have my username and that, but it was, I didn't post much and it was just kind of more reading it for entertainment purposes. But mm-hmm. I just found that it was consuming a lot of my time and that's time I could be using um, to do other things, like whether or not it's related to my degree or just like my own sort of um, Mm -hmm. my own positive well-being. But I did occasionally peruse the the anthropology subreddit um, or other sort of like DNA bioinformatics subreddits in, in grad school and stuff like that, which I pretty sure we've all looked at and yep. by and large you're right it is kind of a nice welcoming community as most again as most human beings are but there's those couple sour apples in there that just really <laughs> kind of make you want to run away and wish that you weren't a person but that's okay <laughs> yes <laughs> so if not reddit um what sort of things do you like to do in your spare time uh so i'm a big video game guy mm-hmm. um i used to have both systems like i had a ps3 i had an xbox now just now it's just PS4. I've gone strictly Sony. Oh, how insulting um, to Nintendo and Wii. <laughs> uh, well, that I, I never got into Nintendo. I didn't have 64 when I was growing up. <laughs> uh, I got the uh, I got the Super Nintendo Classic just to, for nostalgia's sake because I did grow up playing those games because my my cousin had the Super Nintendo mm-hmm. and I had the Sega, so we were able to kind of have both best of both worlds at the time. Yes. Um, so I do that. I play still play guitar a little bit, just kind of keep uh keep the fingers fresh yeah um i go on walks a lot like especially if i'm stuck on something i like to go for a nice like hour-long walk where i can kind of think about it and mm-hmm. it usually actually kind of leads to a breakthrough mm-hmm. uh, i don't need to sound like one of those preachy people but that's it does work so try it but yeah it's yeah good. uh how long have you got left on your phd and you know what are you planning to do uh, we're nearing the end of 2019 now what are you hoping to do in the next few months so i am in my third year um i guess three and a half now because we're almost in december um so i'm in my third year i'm hoping that so the first few months of my phd or, or this year of the phd i guess i should say were kind of designed to learn how to do bioinformatics properly. So fine. I was willing to take the four or five months off and just learn um, with uh, a hospital that I'm affiliated with and just kind of learn and research. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping by this time next year that I'll have my data collection completely finished. I'm pretty much there as is, but um, I'm hoping to turn all of my sequences into uh, variant calls. Um, so usable genetic data that I can actually say something about. And I'm hoping to have my first paper related to my PhD um, 
in publication or at least in press by this time next year. Cool. Um, where I'm going to be looking at the kind of the diversity um, on these sperm function genes between hybrids and non-hybrids and just see if there's any sort of difference. Mm -hmm. Logically speaking, are you enjoying the experience of doing the PhD? I actually really love grad school. Um, I feel, I know there's a lot of people, especially if you go again, cycling back, if you go back to Reddit that just say it's a miserable time, but <laughs> I'm <laughs> That's probably um, me on Twitter, to be honest. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, I actually really had a good time. My two supervisors and my masters were great. I had a really good, solid group of friends. Um, the PhD is kind of the same way. My supervisor is great. Um, Devin, who you spoke to before, she's in my lab group. Uh, so just we're really, really supportive of one another. At least I think we are. Like maybe they talk behind my back. I doubt it, but you never, you never know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, just off the air, Devin and I, I mean, we talked yeah, about it. I know, ages. right? Like, this is how horrible a person I am. Uh, so I just, but I also have, I feel, and again, not to get too preachy about it, but I feel like I have a really, really good, um, like, work-life balance. I feel like if I'm tired of doing something, I just stop. Like, I just, I don't care about it anymore. I'll just, I will, I'll actively turn everything off and stop working at like 7.30 at night if I feel like I'm not making a breakthrough because there's no point in just like killing myself over it and I'll figure it out tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, uh, what do your family or your perhaps your friends who don't do anthropology think about you pursuing this PhD? They're, again, they're all pretty supportive. Um, you still get the question as every PhD student does, are you done yet? Like I get that every single time you talk to them, of <laughs> course, but um, my really good friends that I see a lot, um, they understand, they, they know that it's a, it's a marathon and not a sprint and they're, they're actively supportive. Um, my girlfriend's great. Um, her family's fantastic. Um, so when I did initially quit, the PhD that I was doing in Copenhagen, actually at the uh, University of Copenhagen and um, with uh, the Danish Natural History Museum. Um, I was, stayed there for about two months and when I quit and I was so ashamed, like I just came home and just felt like I was a failure and mm -hmm. everyone in my family and my friends were just like, Chris, you got to do what you want to do. Like you weren't happy with the project. You were homesick. You didn't like the climate, like everything. So we don't care. Like we love you anyway. And that was, that was literally all I needed to hear. And I knew that they were, yeah, I was going to oh. be okay. Well, that's really nice. And I like it. Yeah. Do they understand uh, when you talk about uh, Denisovans or hybridization or sperm function? Uh, absolutely not. Um, my mom, <laughs> likes likes to uh, talk to her friends at work as I think most halfway proud moms like to do um, and I have to write down words for her and like the definition so that she can tell her friends properly that it's okay <laughs> but uh, where I got the uh, internship at the hospital it was I told her I was going to be in the department of bioinformatics and she had me explain to her what bioinformatics was about 15 times before she finally got it. I, right. I, again, air quote, got it. Cause I still don't think she does, but mm -hmm. you never, doesn't mm -hmm. matter. Yeah. She's supportive. Exactly. And she's, she's happy and that's, and that's fine. Like I don't expect like I have a pretty diverse um, friend group as well. Like one of my friends is really, really into um, urban forestry so he'll do uh, plant a lot of gardens but he works on um, like shaping trees and that's like around 
power lines and cutting out um, aspects of it that are disease from insects and that. And he, him and I can go on hikes somewhere and he'll just be talking nonstop about the different types of trees, the different types of wood and all that. And <laughs> it's over my head. Right. Um, but I can appreciate that because when I talk to them, it's definitely over their head as well. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about like ancestor A and ancestor B probably goes over their head too. Yeah, exactly. And I, <laughs> I'm okay with that. I, I like... I like not knowing. There's a, it makes me feel like a kid again. Right. I enjoy it. Well, um, I really want to thank you for making a showing on the podcast. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Where can people find you online if anyone has any questions? Um, so they can just email me directly um, at chris.kendall at mail.utoronto.ca. Um, I do have a research gate profile. I don't know if you can direct message anybody on there. To be honest, I've never tried, um, but they can just look up for <laughs> just look up Christopher Kendall. Should be mm-hmm. there. Um, I know it's shameful, but I don't actually have Twitter. I mean, I do, but I literally used it once. But that's fine. Um, yeah, I don't have an Instagram. I'm not. I'm not cool. I, I don't like. <laughs> I don't like technology. I don't know if we're. I don't know if all of us folks are cool. But yeah. thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Um, Well, uh, even if that's the case, uh, usually I ask the guest if they can come up with a hashtag that is unique to the episode. Okay. It's kind of like a secret for every episode so that listeners can indicate on social media that they've heard the whole interview. Can you think of a hashtag to do with something we've talked about or something that you care about or you find funny? I don't know. What do people normally do? So some people, they go the funny route. Uh, Some of them... They will put in um, important hashtags. They'll use an important hashtag. They'll co-op one um, that that really matters to them, like it's for a cause. And uh, other people will come up with something that's just sort of related to something scientific that they've talked about. Um, I guess we could do like hashtag everyone's a hybrid. Everyone's a hybrid. Everyone's a hybrid. Excellent. (laughs) Everyone's a hybrid. uh, Can you explain that? Um, sure. So we all, we know that almost, well, everybody that every non-African alive today has some, has some Neanderthal DNA in them. Um, so that in itself is kind of self-explanatory, but if we just look at it, um, kind of stepping back from that, every, every human population is admixed with other human populations. So we're, there's no, there's nothing that's Mm-hmm. quote unquote pure um so it just we we literally are all one and we're a, just a mm-hmm. genetic mosaic of everything so i think i think that's fitting it just kind of explains our origins and that we should always be happy and like each other cool excellent great message Thank you. So listeners, if you want to learn more about Chris's work and the work of all of our previous guests, then go to arcanath.com. You can find new episodes of the podcast in future on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you find podcasts. If you want to follow for updates, you can definitely follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit at arcanathpod. And thank you to the patrons who support the show and keep it going. If you want to find out how to become a patron too, then go to patreon.com slash Thank you so much, Chris, for appearing on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It was great. I appreciate it. And um, maybe later on in your PhD, when you start to get some results, you can come back on the show. Yeah? Sure. I'd be absolutely down for that. That would be super fun. Okay, listeners, I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.